Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Deceptively Fast Podcast. I think this is number six. Maybe it's number seven. I am interviewing Dan Riley today, who's one of my favorite people in the NFL or formerly of the NFL. At some point, I'll get around to interviewing my least favorite people, but so far I've been lucky to interview some of my favorite people. Dan is a retired strength and conditioning coach. He spent 27 years in the NFL, 19 with the Washington Redskins, and then eight with the Houston Texans. That's where I met him. He won four Super Bowls while he was with the Redskins. He's going to yell at me for the way I phrased that, but he was there when they won four Super Bowls. I didn't hit anybody. (laughs) I kept the money. Uh, Before that, and this is where we'll start out today, he was the very first strength coach at the United States Military Academy, West Point. Uh, he was one of the pioneers in strength training football players. He was also the first strength coach at Penn State University. So between West Point and the Washington Redskins, he was at Penn State University. Um, really a legend in the field. When I came to Houston in 2002, I had been strength training since I was 13 years old. I had heard a lot of stuff about Dan, much of which turned out to be bunk. Um, and he really, uh, he changed the way I viewed training. He changed the way I viewed life in a lot of ways. And uh, here he is, Dan Riley. How you doing, man? Just finished therapy, so I'm good. <laughs> therapy for what? Physical or mental? Uh, mental. Mental. I was <laughs> oh, just kidding. Oh, well, all right. <laughs> I thought you wanted. Well, the last time, I thought, you know you, what? I thought you wanted this to be relaxed. The last time, <laughs> the last time I talked to you about what you were doing working out, I think you were. They still have issues with your ankle. Like you had issues with your oh, ankle. Oh, I have issues. Oh, yeah, I, bro- I broke my ankle my junior year in college. Oh, okay. I was practicing hook sliding. Yeah. On a gym floor and snap, snapped it pretty good. Oh, man. Yeah. And uh, and it's been nonstop since then. Oh, yeah. Well, back then, medicine was different, too. We had a, a trainer that was a part-time trainer, and she looked at it, put it in an ice bucket, and it turned purple, I mean, uh-huh. immediately. So after 45 minutes, she told me, you ought to go get an x-ray. So I walked to the hospital from, from our training room, which was about a half a mile, which didn't help. Uh, but no, it's, uh, I'm old. Yeah. Everybody has issues. You're not, you're, you're not old. You just, uh, you've got more experience than everybody else. No, I'm else. old. Well, okay. Well, let's talk about that. Let's say you are old. Let's say, for instance, that you started training football players at West Point and you were one of the first ones. I, I know the story vaguely, but I don't know specifically. How did you end up with Arthur Jones, the founder of Nautilus, and the West Point cadets, and how did you all start training football players? Well, uh, the head of the PE department was the reason he brought, we both went to grad school in Indiana, and that's where I met him. Uh, We both played handball. That's how we hooked up. Uh, He wanted to create a position, and they called it the director of strength training uh, back then. What year was that? Uh, 1973. Okay. So uh, got to West Point. They had no facilities, so they wanted to create a facility. They wanted to bring in different people. Universal Gym was big back then, Cybex. Uh, I was a big freeweight fan, uh, York Barbell. So I had a former strongman, John Turpak, come in and present. And the other groups came in, and Nautilus came in with this unbelievable presentation. And they decided they wanted to go 
get a lot of Nautilus equipment, which, which I was totally opposed because I'd never seen a machine, didn't know how to use it. It kind of undermined my credibility. Uh, so at this point, you'd already been hired yes, as a strength coach, yes. but Nautilus came in and blew them away yeah. with, with their presentation. So they flew me down to uh, Arthur Jones' facility in Deland, Florida, and immediately, you know, we we didn't get along because I didn't want to hear what he had to say. You know, he was a, a he he was the creator of high intensity training. You were a classic meathead. Yeah, jerk it, yank it. How much can you? Who cares if you hurt your back? I don't, <laughs> I'll take some medicine and get back in there and do some more squats. But uh, spent a week down there, and it was I learned more in that week with Arthur Jones, who's uh, since passed away, than I did in a year at grad school, and it just blew me away. Uh, I still wasn't totally sold, but I had I had no other way of getting it done. There were 4,500 4, cadets. Uh, there were a lot of athletes that I had to train, so we brought in a couple lines of Nautilus equipment and started training cadets. And immediately the response in an environment that's not great for developing strength at, right. at the oh, academy. Oh, because those kids are just oh, worn, worn down, down, right? Yeah. Uh, but the advantage of high-intensity training, there was one set. Uh, you know, the volume of exercise was low. You're doing one set to failure. In those days especially, you're doing one set to failure for each each movement. Not necessarily to failure. Okay. Some some movements, you know what happened, but like, you know, things like the neck and the traps and parts of the body, uh, hamstrings, you got to be low, the adductors. Uh, but, yeah, uh, and they had a big problem with neck burners, uh, stingers, you know, where if, if people ha haven't had a stinger, if you stick your finger in a socket, you just light up. Yeah. And immediately the results from the neck and trap training, trapezius training, uh, it almost eliminated uh, stingers, and the same thing happened at Penn State, and the same thing happened with the Redskins. So it took me about a year to make the transition because I kept going back and forth to what I was familiar doing uh, and then training cadets, and I started training like that, and eventually I just became sold on it yeah. because there's no, there's no safer way. Uh, it's hard to get hurt unless you do something, you know, dumb. It's the most efficient way to train, and I still believe it. You, you can get the best results if it's done properly. When you were – so that was – in the early 70s, had a lot of schools started to come over to the idea of using weights to train athletes, or was there still the muscle-bound athlete fear? There was only a handful of strength yeah. coaches, uh, just a handful. Uh, but it became – And people were afraid that – like with a lot of athletes, especially baseball players and whatnot, like people were afraid you'd get muscle-bound, wouldn't be able to move. Oh, heck, yeah. Well, uh, that, that's still at, – at, West Point, uh, cadets left there. They went to uh, AOS for three months and were sent to Vietnam. So we had quarterback coach, uh, the wide receivers coach that, I, you know, I don't want my guys training. The cadets didn't care uh -huh. because they had five PE tests they had to do each year, climb ropes, uh, get over walls, I mean, push-ups, pull-ups. Uh, and they knew that they were going to combat, and they didn't they didn't care. So I had a very – an audience that was just, you know, what do you want me to do? Mm -hmm. Well, and that's where – uh, some of the studies you had told me about that were really interesting was when, as much as I, I feel like people think high-intensity interval training was just invented in the last five years with CrossFit, um, the conditioning benefits that you would get while also lifting, that you would take guys and some of them would train for their one-and-a-half-mile fitness test, oh, and then you'd have one group that was just training high-intensity training. There was a study, it was called Total Body Conditioning, a huge, massive study that we did at West Point, and all I did was train people. Uh, I, I had a separate study on, on neck development, but we had Cooper's Institute who did all the aerobic testing, and the, the cadets did average workouts for 18, 20 minutes, uh, and it was intense. It was one movement to the next, to the next, to the next, but they pre- and post-tested a mile and a half, which is a study done in 
back then in combat boots, and it was amazing the increase in, in aerobic conditioning because, and you know, you've, you've been there, your heart rate elevates. Mm-hmm. It's awful. It's a miserable feeling. Oh, uh, yeah, not good. Yeah. Uh, and that, and I think w- with you, we did some of that, but when I got to the Redskins, I realized uh, a lot of athletes still hadn't done any training, like John Riggins, Joe Theismann, older players. That's what I was going to ask you. You were dealing with guys that had never trained with weights before. No. High school, college, anything, Ab- or even in the NFL at that point. A- absolutely. So John Riggins had never touched a weight. No, and he, he was actually opposed to it because they had a part-time strength coach, and uh, they tried to get him to lift. And John is still today, he, he still trains. He's been down here twice, uh, uh, spent time with me, and we went to the gym and trained. Still asked questions about training. But uh, – He's a re- was and still is a really hard worker, and to have him do a set five five reps, you know, squat five reps, and then sit around for three or four minutes, and then he just he he, he wouldn't do it. He said he's you just, know, he got well, and he's a really bright guy too, oh, right? Yeah, so very, he probably got bored. Yeah, very as hell, very intelligent. Yeah. Uh, so when I exposed him one time to what we did, he was just hooked immediately because it was hard, it was intense. He was a farmer, uh, just you know, liked to work hard, and you. I haven't been around very many athletes that if they're willing and that some degree of intelligence that once you expose them to, to proper high intensity train training, and that's a term that, uh, because there's a lot of people say that they've tried it and it doesn't work, but what they've tried isn't true high intensity training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never had a player say this doesn't work or this isn't as good or better than what I was doing. Uh, prolong my career. It doesn't aggravate my joints. Uh, but the problem is the interpretation of what high-intensity training is is the problem because Arthur Jones was the creator of high-intensity training, and he was a brilliant, brilliant, the most intelligent man I've ever been around. Uh, so I learned from the guy that created high-intensity training. Now, there are people that learn from someone who learn from someone who learn from someone, and I've been to many places where they say, yeah, we use high-intensity training, and I look in the gym and I go, oh, my gosh the interpretation is lost a bunch. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's why some people say it doesn't work because, you know, they don't emphasize the lowering of the weight. They use momentum to help raise the weight. Uh, you, were always, you were always very, very strict with form. And that was one of the things that, that was, it wasn't like I had horrible form, but when I come here, I, the first thing I realized was, oh, yeah, if, if you're not using strict form all the time, you really don't know if you've improved at all. Because if you're just hoisting the weight up, then it becomes almost dumb luck on one day, well, whether, you, you, whether you just heaved it up the right way or not. The problem is you can get results doing yeah. anything. There's a person called Milo of Croton, and people should uh, Google this guy. Back in ancient Greece, it was the first re- documentation of the overload principle. And the overload principle says if you want to get stronger, you got to lift more weight. Then the next time you work out, you're going to lift more weight. That's how easy it is to get strong. Well, this guy lived on his dad's farm, and he was preparing for the, the Greek games. And he took a baby bull on his own. He didn't have a strength coach, didn't have Dan Riley to screw him up. Took a baby bull, put it on his shoulders, and he walked a measured distance. And he did this every day. The bull grew heavier every day, and Milo got stronger every day. And the story goes, he started out with a baby bull weighing a buck twenty-five, and when it got up to 396 pounds, he couldn't get it up anymore yeah but that it that's how easy and simple it is to get results just taking some creatine (laughs) the the, the 400 pound barrier well and that's why you go to gyms and you see guys walking around with you know big you can get results doing anything if there's some intensity and there's some overload but my point was always especially with athletes don't waste their time 
Don't waste their energy. Don't get them hurt. So get the best results in the least amount of time uh, in the most expeditious manner possible. And the, the minimal effective dose. Yes. Yeah. What, what, um, because I remember you talking about working back at Penn State, and I can't remember the exact story, but I think it was along the lines of you tried you tried to explain that you tried to explain that the some of the athletes that were doing well were getting more rest, and Paterno interpreted that as like, oh, okay, well, so if those guys got more work, they'd be even better. Yeah, uh, and that's that's the coaching way that uh, you know m- more more is better. Yeah, uh, and. I said the opposite, you know, find out how little exercise you can do to get the best results. When we ran, uh, we only ran twice a week, and I started out with 16 110s. And if you remember with the Texans, by then we dropped it down to 10 for the mm-hmm. skill guys, and for the big guys we dropped it down to 8. So we were running 8 110s on that day instead of running 16 and getting the same results. The intensity was higher. Uh, and that, 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 that was always my mantra. How little exercise can you do to get the best results? Not how much exercise can you do until you stop getting results, or you don't recover, or you hurt somebody. Yeah. What When you look around now and you see all the biometric tracking where they'll track guys with GPS and distance and resting heart rate, is, is this a lot of the stuff that you would wish you had 15 years ago? Because now strength coaches can go to coaches and say, look, this guy's overtrained. Like, you need to... You need to back off. We need to back off. We need to figure some some way of doing it. Maybe because I wish I had it, but I don't know that it would have helped. I can give you an example. Football uh, coaches seem to be the worst. Out of like like basketball coaches and baseball coaches seem to be pretty receptive to it, but football coaches. I agree. I worked with Mike Szeszewski at West Point, and he was unbelievably receptive. I'll give you an example with the Texans, and I won't mention the coach. <laughs> you want to mention the coach. <laughs> Not that it makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't, don't don't it, mention the coach. Okay. You don't have to do it. Well, well, maybe we'll mention the coach. <laughs> you know that we had a bod pod, and a bod pod, they're used at the combine now. They yeah. measure uh, density. They measure how much body fat you have, how much muscle you have, and you were in that thing just dozens and dozens of times because you were concerned. And I had to get body weights every week, which I hated because I'm sitting in the locker room watching naked men get dressed so i always turn my back away from the locker room i don't know if you remember no i remember yeah you had to be stationed down there you looked miserable the whole time oh i hated it so coaches uh the position coach would get together with the head coach and decide what you should should weigh yeah well they decided that andre johnson should weigh 225 for the most part he was always around 225 but one day he came in and he was 229 Uh uh-huh and i get called up to the coach's office and he said what's going on with andre and i said what do you mean and he said he weighed 229 and I didn't call him coach. I never, I, whatever his name was, I said, Andre Johnson is 4.7 in the bod pod. And doctors would tell you that if you get too lean, yeah. you lose fat that surrounds your organs to help protect from bruising. And 4.7% in the bod pod is really, for people that have only had experience with calipers and everything. Calipers that's like, are useless. But, it, but the people that think that you, people that think it's a, the 2% body fat is achievable, that's like the equivalent. Like it's it's extremely shredded. Yeah, you're, you're. Yeah. You're in a morgue, and they've cut out all your fat. <laughs> so he says, well, we, we, said his bo- we said his body, he should weigh 225. And I said, that's what you said. I said, science would say that's ridiculous. He's the leanest guy on the team at 4.7. Well, we agreed on 225. So I, if, 
we, if I had the technology that they have today, I don't know that it would have made a difference. He wouldn't, right, because you're sitting there looking, saying, look, I've got science here. I've got, I've got a hard and evidence, fast measurement. Evidence-based information. Uh, it was, it, it's like back in the day when, when doctors would tell athletes and coaches, if you dehydrate the brain, you could die. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't a very good football player, but in high school, my senior year, our coach put a pail of water with a soup label. And I wasn't near the top of the team, so by the time I got to the pail, there wasn't a lot of water left. Uh -huh. uh, but before that, coaches thought that it would make you tough not giving you water. And science said back then, you're going to kill people. And they did. So when a coach says— And they fought it and fought it. For, Dan, I was—look, I was doing peewee football in, what, the, the late 80s, and we weren't allowed to have water. We had to take a swig and spit it out, you know? <laughs> And I'm not saying that all football coaches aren't evidence-based or would, would adjust to science, but uh, my, my experience, uh, because most coaches are in a position where they can control your playing time, your scholarship, whether you make the team and make money or not. Uh, and I would just say to coaches out there that I've always been taught that a good coach has big ears and a bad coach has a big mouth. Mm -hmm. So coaches that are hollering and screaming and, and not willing to accept change or at least evaluate science uh shame on you i went back through the archives because you you coached so long and there have been a lot of articles written about you i'm gonna i'm just gonna read these quotes there's one from 1983 uh one from 1993 and then we're gonna go through uh something you wrote in the early 2000s but in 1983 the washington post wrote an article uh about you this is the quote most professional, this is you speaking, most professional conditioning and strength coaches are taking the stupid way out by discrediting anything they're not familiar with, namely other than a barbell. There's a lot of incompetence when it comes to training our athletes. I thought in time it would get better, but those people using bad practices are multiplying faster than those that aren't. So that was in 1993. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering, do you think, has a lot changed? No, it's gotten last, worse. It's gotten worse? You got people shaking ropes. You got people jumping off boxes. You've got athletes that are. I've. I'm, I'm not going to uh, give names or examples, but uh, just the the dumb things that are still being done and not supported with science. I know you're familiar with the term the plank, mm -hmm. and for the listeners that aren't, if you get into a push-up position and then drop down to your forearms, you're in a position where your body's at an angle. And people, uh, I go to LA Fitness here on Holcomb, and every day I see people doing that, and. It's a, it's a static contraction. You're, they're saying that you're, you're stabilizing. Anytime you do an exercise, all muscles are stabilizing in some degree. Your rectus abdominis, your, your trunk flexors, when you do a sit-up, they contract through 35 degrees. So sitting at one fixed point, one angle, with your body weight that doesn't change, because an exercise makes you hurt, it makes you sweat, it might make you sore, it's non-producing strength exercise. The American Council on Exercise, a certifying agency, did a study of 10 different ab exercises uh, using electromyograms where they hook up electrodes and they can tell what how intense the contraction is. Uh, they found that uh, of the 10, the bicycle maneuver was the first and the plank was the least effective of any. But you see people, it it's just... Bicycle maneuver, like the old school laying on your back and... Uh, uh, you and rotate the, your elbow to yeah, your knee. Yeah, yeah. And another study was done that found that that wasn't a very effective <laughs> exercise. Physiological <laughs> studies are really frustrating. <laughs> but it would be like telling somebody, do a bicep plank. You know, uh, take 20-pound dumbbells and flex your arms at 90 it's degrees. It's an isometric exercise. It's a, yeah. not isometric. Isometric would be if you 
pushed against an immovable object uh -huh. and it didn't move. It's a static contraction. Okay. Uh, but it's just, it's dumb. <laughs> You're sitting there at 90 degrees with a dumbbell for your biceps. You wouldn't do that. Well, that's where, you know, and it was always interesting to me because you, you would be the first guy to argue about how some movements are wasteful because what you were an advocate of was that the best way to get better at playing football or doing your sport is to play that sport. The only way. Which is, which is, and it's funny because that's a philosophy that I feel coaches should really love. And yet, because fitness is so dominated by really good salespeople, I think there are a lot of coaches that hear like, oh, this these movements in the weight room will make them better football players versus this or that. Where it, really, like, honestly, your your approach was get as strong as you can and as little as amount of energy expended so you have more energy for the actual getting better at your sport. The term is Henry's hypothesis. And unfortunately, uh, I've had an undergraduate and graduate course in motor learning, and they've removed it from classrooms if they did. And a coach or an athlete or a personal trainer or a strength coach t took that course, they'd understand that Henry's hypothesis is all about skill transfer. Mm -hmm. There's positive, neutral, and negative. The only way to get positive transfer is to perform the exact skill. If you take a regular basketball and practice follow shots, and then you give an athlete a weighted ball and tell him to shoot it, you know, that's high, it's low, it's all over the place. Well, you're, you're, the, the pattern that you're recruiting is a different pattern when you add weight. As soon as you add weight, it becomes a different skill. And negative transfer occurs where you practice with that heavy ball, whether a baseball or weighted bat, uh, and then go back to a conventional. If you did it long enough, you disrupt the, the skill pattern of the skill you're trying to develop. So it, the, the, the key would be, and Henry's hypothesis is one step away from the law. It's been tested so many times. You can't transfer one skill to another. So don't say uh, adding weight to a, a, a ball will make you stronger. It's, it's not enough weight to make you stronger, and it could disrupt the skill pattern. His, his law states, practice the exact skill. In the weight room, find an exercise that takes the muscle or muscles you're willing to strengthen through the greatest range of motion, get strong in the weight room, forget about trying to imitate anything you do on the field, and then go out and practice your specific skill. Mm -hmm. I, and I think that falls in line with, in 1993, the New York Times wrote an article about different philosophies and strength training. And, and this is, I'm, I'm a little, I was a little bit peeved by this because I think your whole career you've been classified as a guy, like, oh, Dan Riley, he's a machine weights guy. But then you walk into the weight room of Dan Riley and you've got barbell benches everywhere. You've got, a, you've got two full sets of dumbbells. Like we, had we, we had two racks of dumbbells from 5 to 150. Yeah. We had seven power, power rack stations, yeah. barbell stations. And the PR department called me one time and they said, we got this guy that uh, uh, called and complained that we don't uh, use free weights with the Texans. And... They, he said, do you want to respond? I said, sure. I said, give me his uh, name and number. And they did, and I called the guy and asked him to come down and uh, visit. Well, Sage Rosenfelds was working out that day, and I told him that this was going to happen. Would he mind if this guy watched him work out? And, you know, I've always I've told people, come in, ask the players. Don't ask me. I can tell you whatever I want to tell you. So Sage said, sure. So I go out and get the guy, bring him in, and the guy was maybe 5'6", weighed about 3'10", had on a cutoff sweatshirt, his knees bowed in together and legs bowed out. And now was he at least was he a powerlifting looking guy or just no, not a lifting guy? <laughs> he was a a lot of hot dog eating guy. Okay, gotcha. Just, just soft. And Sage saw him, I felt bad, and he starts laughing. So, anyways, we you know we start working out and uh, we finish. And I say to the guy, I go, it's just that we have, we have a ten thousand foot 
weight weight room. Yeah. We've got seven neck machines, three shrug stations. We've got five lines of equipment with hammer. No, we've got two racks of dumbbells up to 150. We've got 12 zero to 90 free weight benches. And the guy goes, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. But that's the reputation that I've had my whole career, that I'm a, a machine guy. Well, that's what they told me before I came to Houston. I was like, well, you're not going to get a, lot, a, whole lot, a whole lot of coaching there. Um, <laughs> it's, just a lot of, uh, it's just a lot of just doing routines on machines. And I get here, and it was the most – that's what angered me the most was two different people told me I wouldn't get a lot of coaching because these are guys that wanted to, you know, supposedly teach me how to – Olympic lift, even yep. though I've learned more, like I've learned more from YouTube about Olympic lifting than I did from professional <laughs> strength coaches. But those guys didn't have a clue. Um, but I get here, and it was the most coached I'd ever been in the weight room. Like I had somebody pushing me every single rep instead of a guy up at the top telling me to do two percent, take eighty-two percent of your one rep max, even though you don't actually know what that is, and perform that for three reps, and then have us all do it. You've got you pushing a guy along every step of the way. And it was just, it was miserable and it was awesome because it was just, I got tested every single time I worked out. We had 11 upper body routines and you probably don't remember, but we had three dumbbell routines. The most popular was the dumbbell ladder. That's the most, most used routine we had using dumbbells. Uh, we had a barbell routine. We had a free weight combo platter routine we called, uh, and we had uh, hammer equipment. We had Nautilus equipment and the, the structure was the same. There were uh, three pushing movements, two pulling movements, and three isolation shoulder movements in every routine. The only difference, you selected what equipment you wanted to mm -hmm. use. It's not the equipment. The study was done comparing a barbell bench press and a barbell overhead press compared to a Smith machine doing the same exercises. And a Smith machine is simply a barbell on guide rods that will only move up and down. You don't have to balance it. And they used electromyograms to see how intense each would be with the same degree of resistance. And they found that there was no difference in, in the number of muscle fibers recruited. And if you think about it, when you use a barbell, when you first start, maybe there's some uh, jiggling, some movement. But once you learn, that bar goes straight up and down. Mm -hmm. It's perpendicular. So... It, 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 again, it's it's not the equipment you use, I, and I believe the more variety you have, if you use the same equipment every single workout, it's mundane. You know you're going to get seven reps uh, with this this exercise and five with that exercise. By changing equipment, it's good for your, your mind. It's also, I believe, good for your muscles because there's ne neurological nuances uh, with different equipment. Yeah. A lot of a lot of Nautilus machines have cams. They vary the resistance. As you get stronger, it adds more weight. Uh, where you're weaker during the movement, it decreases the weight. So there's actually advantages to some of the machines that are used for especially isolation movements. And you asked me when we were coming up what I was doing to work out, and I couldn't give you a straight answer because I like basically I'm bouncing around from place to place in theory to theory. I'll go to Orange Theory, which I don't know if you've heard of that at all. Nope. Um, it's heart rate based training, and I know you. You know we used to mess around with the heart rate bands while I was training, uh, just to try to keep my heart rate above a certain level while we were doing circuit training. Um, but they do, you start off on a treadmill and you do intervals on a treadmill and then you go and you do a, like a full body resistance training workout and it's just, it's group fitness, yep. but I don't, I don't want to do it, you know, three days a week for a month. So you can buy classes and I'll, I'll pop in there and then I'll go to, I've got a anytime fitness membership. Um, and then I might just go run some days i just basically whatever i feel like doing i do that's my workout right now my workout i'm i'm 68 years old and for the non-athletes especially people over 30 years old there's a term called sarcopenia 
and it means uh, loss of flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all, as we Sarcopenia age... Sarcopenia sounds better than loss of flesh. It, it's a Greek derivative. As we age, and after 30 years old, our body starts to die. Yeah. We start losing muscle. And most people lose muscle and add fat. So they might gain 10 pounds, but they might have lost 5 pounds of muscle, so they've actually added 15 pounds of fat. Yeah. Uh, it is far more important for me at my age to continue training, and I, my wife and I both uh, train hard, than it is for a young person because they've got youth on their side uh, or even an athlete. So for the older listeners, the, by far the most important thing you can do if you, if you don't strength train uh, it's far more important than cardio. It's more important than yoga, Pilates, because you see seniors as they age uh, that their brains and their organs are functioning really well, but they struggle to get out of a chair. They mm-hmm. have to rock to get up because they've lost so much muscle. Uh, I play golf with uh, some guys, and we're all older, and some guys struggle getting out of a, a trap because they, they, they've lost so much muscle. Yeah. Uh, it is. Uh, you see, p- older people when they walk, they've lost so much muscle that if they're afraid that if their center of gravity gets outside of their their feet, they lose their balance and they don't have enough strength to recover. Right. And that's why so many older people fall. Yeah. You see, people practicing balance in the gyms for older people. It's not balance. It's they they need to regain lost muscle. And studies have been done with octogenarians, people in their eighties, that that regain muscle. And I, I'm not sure about what kind of training they're doing, but it's possible uh, to, to gain muscle. Well, uh, with a lot of them, it's just any training. is any Like you said earlier, any training at all is going to make a difference if you're not doing anything, right? Absolutely. But it's, uh, again, and you see, I, and it's not just women, but especially women at, at the gym, I, I see them using like three-pound dumbbells, you know, doing tricep kickbacks, and yeah. you want to say to them, stay home. Roberta Anding, the, the dietitian for the Texans, once told me that she weighed her handbag and it weighed eight pounds. So when I used to speak to uh, groups, non-athletes, adults, and there were women, I'd tell them, if she's an average woman, and probably is, you're hauling around a bag that weighs eight pounds, and you go to the gym and use a three-pound dumbbell, you're wasting your time. Yeah. You need to use meaningful resistance. Uh, and again, it, it needs to be the overload principle. Every time you train, you need to add resistance. I don't care if it's a half a pound. And keep adding weight every exercise, every workout, until you're satisfied with your results, your form gets starts to erode, or you r- risk injury. So we saw an article from 1993, uh, one from 1983. This was in the early 2000s. You used to run a corner of the website or a part of the website called the Fitness Corner on HoustonTexans.com. I don't know if, like, I found some PDFs. I don't know if it's still live on the website or not. Oh, no. When I got whacked, they whacked the— They got rid of everything? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking at a—I found a plagiarized the, version of this Dan, on the Dan, web. Dan, uh, yeah, it might be out there somewhere, but when Dan <laughs> Riley got whacked— they, When you got whacked, you, they re, they re, you, you got everything off your chest. They removed me. You went and had a chat <laughs> with, with, with Kubiak and, uh, and Rick. Did you have a chat with Rick Smith or— Let's 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 let that be. Okay, that's all, all right. in the past. I, a, I had I had uh, eight great years with the Texans and nineteen unbelievably great years with the Redskins. I have no 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 grief. Yeah. All right. Uh, so you used to write this, and you used to, you used to write a lot. I was really impressed with how much how many questions you answered. But you did one column where you you addressed the ten most common questions you got from visitors, and I know. <laughs> I know you gave a diplomatic answer to this one question. I'm going to tell everybody the question you used to you used to answer, how you used to answer this question. Uh, question number two was which text which Texan bench presses the most weight? 
You used to tell us that if somebody came up to us and asked how much we'd bench, to kick them in the nuts and then tell them how much we can do on the rear delt because the bench press is a stupid exercise. The rear delt, you bring that up, and this is a compliment to you. You don't remember this, but I remember uh, when you were with the Jaguars, they told you that you couldn't do inclines. I couldn't do a bunch. I had shoulder issues, yeah, so I, sho was, I was limited from a and, bunch of and exercises. You were an unbelievably powerful guy, like your lower body and parts of your upper body. The first time you got on the, the hammer rear delt machine, I had 20 pounds on there. Yeah, and you struggled with twenty pounds, and which is a lightweight for anybody listening. It's a, you you lay face down and you use your elbows to push, push up these backwards. two weights. Which and you think like, oh, that sounds like a bodybuilding exercise. It's a it's really important for stabilizing your shoulder. Yeah, absolutely, it, everybody's focused on the front of your body. You know, everybody wants the 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 mirror muscles, and you neglect the back of your shoulders, and that's where a lot of instability comes from. Uh, and it didn't take long. You responded, and I'm I'm not blowing smoke. You know where uh, you you reached a point where you used 62 and a half pounds on the rear delt on each side, yeah. which was more than any player that I've ever trained. And again, it's genetic potential. It's just part of your body that was, was ignored. And you know, for me, when you came into the weight room, the first thing you did, trained your neck, yeah. tra trained your trapezius. Uh, that was our priority. After that, in the upper body, it was the shoulder capsule. And that's why every routine had four exercises for the shoulders, three isolation, uh, and one uh, overhead press movement. That's where, I, and that's one thing I liked about you is I was always, I was always a little bit self conscious because I was a pretty strong guy, but I did not have a good bench press. Like it was a pretty average bench press. You got long arms. So whenever, yeah, I guess that it's it's long arms, and part of it's just the way you, you know I'd had shoulder issues and the way my I think sometimes just the way your muscles attach. It's just it doesn't translate that way, but that's the. That's the one that everybody's obsessed with. You can tell somebody how much you squat, but everybody's lying about that anyway, or they're doing quarter squats. So I just tell people to talk to Dan Riley if they ask me how strong I was. Anthony Weaver, who's currently the D-line coach with the Texans, yeah. and I've trained trained him a lot, uh, played golf with him a lot. Uh, he once told me when we talked about the bench press, because he said people would always ask him whenever they met him, how much do you bench? And he'd tell him, he, he said to me at Notre Dame, he said, when you look up on the wall, the players that have all the records he said most of them never played <laughs> oh yeah the strongest guys are usually the worst <laughs> short, short, they're not the best short limbs right you know maybe a big chest short arms yeah uh, and let me add this and i've i've said this publicly many times and uh there's a player with the redskins donnie warren whose birthday's on cinco de mayo so every year i, I call him and wish him happy birthday donnie warren uh was the hardest working player uh I had, and you can only work so hard until uh, Jim Lachey, who was a first-round draft pick, offensive lineman. Yeah. He lived in Percival, Virginia, and rode his bike on a bike path in the off-season 20 miles to Redskins Park. That bike path went from Percival to uh, Washington, 20 miles D. there, and then 20 miles back? Yeah. Oh, wow. On a leg day and a run day. Um, and I will say this. I don't know if you, you still have it or you got it. I sent you a lower body workout that you have. Yeah, it's on VHS back at the house, yeah. I used to show that at clinics, and I'd have coaches at the end of the clinic come up to me and say, I couldn't ask my players to do that. They'd be scared if they saw that. Seth Payne to the public is the, and I've trained hundreds and hundreds of, of NFL players, is the absolute, and you are, you're the absolute hardest worker I've ever trained. I was afraid that you'd hurt yourself sometimes. You trained so hard, uh, and it was it was an honor and a privilege to train you. Oh, thanks, man. Mostly I was just trying to see, exercise demons. I just, I, I just, <laughs> no, you, I got you, a lot of demons. You can only work so hard. There's different degrees, uh, and 100% is a hard to achieve, but you were a 100%er, uh, and I, I, 
I've never trained another one. It was uh, well. That's what and that's what I appreciated about the way you train was that I was able to do that without injuring myself. You know, versus in my whole career leading up to where I got here, I think I just I I when you're trying to when you're trying to meet certain goals within various workouts, if it's not structured the, the right way, you just end up making yourself sick. You know, and you get burnt out. Um, and I never felt burnt out with you because there was always variety. Um, it was always very safe, and it was always. Uh, the the fact that we always had a coach right over us going alongside with us that's just all the motivation there was no competition either your competition was you know we kept accurate records every rep every exercise we had the date that you did your best effort so when you took time off or you got hurt we knew where you needed to get back to but you could look at your workout sheet and it would tell you how many how much weight and how many reps you did the last workout and if your goal was to get stronger there was a weight there uh, but it was the only competition was with yourself. Yeah. We we never tested you. You were never compared to another person. Testing is useless. It's it's meaningless. Because you want to be able to see what can you do every day. Now it was like what what can you do on May fifth? And that was the greatest thing about I think the way you viewed training was what's the sense in getting your bench press up to five forty five for one day in the spring when it falls down to you're just doing light sets of 10 by the end of the season. Like it was, you you wanted the guys to be as close to as strong as they were on September 1st, uh, on December 15th. Like they, you wanted to maintain that as much as possible. Your in-season strength program for athletes and coaches out there, your in-season strength program is your program. Don't have me jumping off a box in, in February or throwing a medicine ball up in the air or it's swinging ropes uh, or doing stuff like, and then once the season begins, it stop doing it. Yeah. The body's not going to remember skill and it's not going to remember exercise. That's why our in-season strength program mirrored our off-season program. Nothing changed. This is something I've struggled with and it's been like 10 years now is we just talked about how hard I used to train. And I, my wife, my wife, when I first met her, Brandy was very impressed with how hard I used to work out because she's a phys ed teacher, you know, she's an, an, a jock and a really good athlete herself. And because uh, I used to, I used to just go until I wanted to pass out and then I'd see if I could keep going through that. And some, something happened once I was done playing football. That completely left me. There's no need. But now she's disgusted with me. She just, she's not disgusted with Brandy. me. But she does wonder sometimes, I think, when, she, I, I try to, when she'll see me quit in the middle of a workout, what, what happened to the Seth I used to know. You know what? There's exercises that uh, I wouldn't recommend anyone, someone go to the point of, mu- they call it muscular failure. People understand muscles don't fail till you die. Yeah. You reach a point where you can't or aren't willing to continue the exercise, uh, you don't have to train that hard to get results. And most people won't train that hard, and there's no need to train that hard. And even with athletes, if let's say you're getting 95% of the results, but willing to tolerate that intensity, I'd rather that than try to get 100% and say, I ain't doing this anymore. Yeah. I was was working out with Drew Hodgden, who you trained? Drew was here when you yeah. were here, oh, right? Yeah, yeah the I've, center, uh, former center. Yeah, I've played golf with Drew too. And uh, and Drew's an awesome guy, but he was still he was still in his immediate post career mode. The last time I worked out with him, and we were going through some workout, and you know he was he was doing mili- standing military press, he told, supersetted with squats or he, something. He told me we played golf one time, and he said, "I'm done. I'm not going to mention where he was training, but yeah. he said he hurt his shoulder pretty bad." Yeah, and he said. I don't know why I did it because it was competitive. You know, I, I'm done playing, but I still felt, you know, wanted to compete. Uh, well, I saw there was an article um, and I can't think of which 
former offensive lineman it is. He's actually kind of vocal in the legalized marijuana. And, and I'm all for the legalization of pot, except that I see some guys, especially former players, talking about, and, and this is what this guy was doing in his article, he's talking about how much pain he's in, but at the same time, they're following him through this workout where he's doing like weighted pull-ups and all this other stuff. And and I just want to tell him, dude, you don't have to do that anymore. Like those workouts, those workouts are causing you more pain than it's worth. There's things you can do to stay in good shape and actually feel, you know what it is? It's making that transition. Once you're out of really competing for sports is I had to learn. It took me a while to learn that, Oh, I actually really enjoy exercise. Like, this isn't for a purpose or anything. I'd actually, if I do it a certain way, it actually makes me feel better. And and there's certain depths that I don't need to go to anymore. Yep. Like there's certain, there's a pain cave that I don't need to go into anymore, whether it's to satisfy my ego or or to be better as a football player. People used to ask me, why, why do you work out? And now I just look at them and say, why don't you? Yeah. Because if you did and you got the benefits that you're capable of getting without being crazy about it, uh, it's a way of just storing energy, you know, lift strength training. I hate to say lifting weights, but strength training is a form of interval training. Uh, you know, you, you do a burst of exercise where you deplete energy and your body replaces it and you develop more energy. And it's, uh, I've only gone through a couple periods in my life where I didn't strength train. Uh, and it, 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 there was a big difference in energy levels and how, how you feel. And it's not psychological. It, it, it's real. Uh, again, to the adults out there, Google sarcopenia. If it doesn't scare you, uh, if you have a grandparent or a parent uh, that struggles getting out of a chair or they take tiny little steps when they walk because yeah. they're afraid of you know falling, uh, it will. It, it is the only thing that can unbelievably uh, help you in your future. You know, feel feel better uh, and lead a, a better quality life. I would imagine especially the more elderly somebody gets that that thought of strength training if you're if you're walking around and you're worried about falling over and breaking a hip then the thought of strength training is probably terrifying well the problem and i'm not saying dan riley is the only person that would know how to train a, a an older person but the problem you go into gyms and you see what what people are doing you know just standing on a bazoo ball doing bicep curls with 10 pound dumbbells and wiggling and uh if it's properly performed high intensity strength training, uh, there's absolutely nothing better. And it, the response would be quick if it's done properly. Well, and, and this is another lesson I learned from you because I I've, I've went through a few knee rehabs and I think that that emphasis on functional training and proprioception and all these other fancy words, uh, stabilizing muscles, all of those, Core training. The core training. It, they get to a point where they, they put the cart before the horse. And I get to a point in rehab where they might want me to be doing, you know, single leg squats on a physio ball. And I just didn't have the strength to do it yet. And But, but I wouldn't be allowed to move into the weight room until I was able to do these really highly advanced balancing exercises. So what I started doing was, um, without anybody knowing about it, I'd sneak into the weight room at 4 a.m. And I started doing leg press and lo and behold, you know, within like three weeks after doing leg press, the thing that I was being limited from doing, all of a sudden I could fly through all the other proprioception and balancing and all that stuff because I actually had the strength to do it. Well, when, when, when you got hurt, I remember your body weight dropped as it should have, and yeah. you did it right. You atrophied, you, you're losing a lot of muscle and as big as you are, you, you lose muscle. Uh, but 
let's say you weigh 285 pounds. I had a, a doctor and a trainer say, well, he can't do leg presses. But you're, they're in the training room doing one-legged step-ups. Your body weight at 285 and you stepping up with one leg yeah. with 285 Spot pounds. 560 there, 570, yeah. Minus your, you're not lifting your lower leg from your kneecap to your foot. It's yeah. 280 pounds, 275 pounds with one leg. That's like, you know, squatting over 500 pounds. It, yeah. it didn't make sense. On a leg press, you know that we could put a given amount of weight, if it was 100 pounds, that you could safely do. Uh, the next workout, 105, 100 uh, but again, that's the problem. People, they, they always ask me, uh, do you personal train? And I tell them, number one, you can't afford me. <laughs> number two, it ain't worth what you'd have to pay. <laughs> um, one of the questions that was one of the most 10, 10 most frequently asked questions when you're doing the fitness corner was what age should I start my son or daughter lifting weights? And I'll give the listeners a little bit of a background here. Um, because you have uh, you have two sons, Marty and T. T played bas- uh, baseball at James Madison. Yes, and you you had been asked at various times. Okay, like what did you contribute to T's success? Why is T so athletic? Why is T so fast? What tricks were you teaching? He was ranked second in the country in Division One baseball in stolen bases, and he missed eight games with a, a leg problem. Um, but they did an, they did an article the NCA did, and they asked me. This question, I don't know if that's where you're going. They asked me a question. They said, well, what'd you do with him? You know, he's one of the fastest guys in the country. Uh, you know, you're a strength coach with the Redskins. Can you give us at least one or two tips for people? And I said, yeah, I left him alone. Yeah. The guy started laughing. I said, I said I'm serious. I left him alone. We weren't doing box jumps. We weren't on platforms. Uh, he strength trained his legs properly. He practiced running the bases. Uh, he was genetically gifted. His mom could run fast. Uh, but people don't want to hear that. Motor learning experts, exercise physiologists tell you that you cannot improve speed. You cannot improve quickness. Now, I know this. Personal trainers, strength coaches, track coaches screaming and yelling, you cannot change the neurological infrastructure from your brain to your nervous system. You can't change it. Now, what you can do, you can practice the skill and get better. You can practice a stance, a start. There's things that I could teach that would help you run faster. Uh, because of technique, but it's not changing your neurological infrastructure. And I tell parents, if you want, if you're going to pay somebody to improve your son or daughter's quickness or speed, pick the task. Is it a 40? Time them electronically, not with a stopwatch. Time them electronically in that task. Have them practice that task over and over and over until their time just levels off. A three-cone drill, practice that three-cone drill over and over and over and over until the time levels off. Put your money up for your specialist and have them work with your athlete and then time them when they're done. Any improvement will be technique improvement, and you may see some where there's no improvement. If I were to time somebody, I'd do it in a, it's called a flying, flying running start. Ha- have a person start running, and when they get to the 20, the uh, be at full ti- speed at the 20. Yeah, timer goes off, yeah. have them run t- uh, 20 more yards, and have it uh, time, time that speed. You'll see that that speed won't change. Oh yeah, because the start, like when you time a forty, the start is what two tenths, three tenths of a second. Oh, I mean, you can, can shave a lot of time off a guy. Little things like uh, the start. Like, most people, when they start, the first step is to the side, and 
track people would teach you, your first step needs to be forward. You need to gain ground with each step. It's called your sinusoidal curve. If you watch some real good runners, their head doesn't move up and down. Yeah. Their body doesn't move side to side. That's wasted movement. And you teach someone uh, good running technique, and they'll run faster. But again, the neurological infrastructure does not change. And T was one of those kids, right, that was just inborn motivated like Peyton Manning work ethic just was driven like you you were not the dad that was telling T he had to get into the gym and get better he mm-hmm. was just obsessive about it no he's still here he's here in Houston he's the uh, AD now at um oh he's the athletic director yes at, at uh Episcopal? at St. Francis St. Francis yeah he just moved he was the head baseball coach at St. John's but uh no, he was uh, both of them. Marty was a, a good athlete too. He was a football player. He was a quarterback, and they both wanted to train. And uh, I wouldn't let them train until they were freshmen in high school. They'd come to the gym, and I'd uh, let them and show them how to do a pull up or a push up and stuff like that. They didn't touch a weight until they were fourteen. And the reason, and you know, the level of testosterone in their body at that age, a boy, a girl, be a little more uh, at that age, uh, is so low that they could lift weights and and a month, six weeks, they've leveled off. They're not going to get any stronger. And if you wait till the next year and do that, and they didn't lift weights at all, they're going to be stronger at 15. They're going to be stronger at 16, 17, even if they didn't touch a weight. And it's called maturation. Yeah. And that's what happens with a lot of athletes. They'll train with a personal trainer in high school and go from their freshman year to their senior year, and they've matured physically. And hopefully they gain some benefits from what they've done, but they attribute everything with their gains to what they did Instead of, I matured physically. I didn't have to jump off a box to be able to vertical jump, you know, 30 inches. You know what's funny about that? Because you brought up, you know, how you don't like testing necessarily uh, with to, to, to prove yourself to coaches. Comparing. comparing what's that? Comparing. Comparing, right. player to another. Right, you want to test, but not, like, yeah. Uh, yourself to yourself. But <laughs> where it blows up in people's faces, we had a strength coach in college who's just a part-time strength coach. I felt bad for him because he was expected to work with a whole team and on a part-time basis. And that's... You know how that is, trying to deal with that many people. Um, but we would have guys, and again, it just shows how useless it can be sometimes from year to year. We'd have guys that would actually go down from the year prior. And this is when he's gone from you know 20 years old to 21 years old, which is it's impossible. There's no way the guy actually got weaker over the course of a year. And guys that had actually been training, but it was like, I'm, you know, maybe it was during spring practice and so they were tired. Hung over. Yeah, it was Hung exactly. over on, on, on training day. <laughs> All right. I don't want to keep you here forever. Do you do you have a website still? No, I don't. I Are wish you going to get one? No, I, I'm. It's over my head. I'm not. I'm not tech savvy. Well, it's not over. It's not over your head. Well, I'm, my oldest son works for Microsoft, and every time I have a question, I'll you know I'll call him. He'll say, "I'll send you a link," and I'll say, "I don't want a link. I paid for your college. You tell me how to. <laughs> you tell me how to do it now." That's how he's paying back. His- <laughs> I wish I had a, a, a website because I, I love writing. Yeah. I was an English minor and a, a PE major, uh, because I feel so badly when people and people still ask me questions, and I'd love to be able to say, "Go here." You know, I, this is how to start a strength program. This is how much weight you should use. Here's routines. Uh, but it, it, that's why it's frustrating because I don't know where to send people. Yeah. And there's many competent people out there. I, I'm talking like I'm the only the only person that knows how to train people. Uh, there's many competent people out there, but uh, you got to work your way through a lot of noise in this in the fitness industry. I mean, and, it's and you uh, know, you're you're also when you're giving somebody recommendations, I, I got to think in the back of your mind you're thinking about the 10 other guys are going to tell this person that you're a moron when they go and tell you what it, they're, or, or they're going to argue with your methodology. Strength training is so simple. Yeah. And I see in the gym a lot of 
people try to make it hard. You know, you've got a leg press. The first time you come in, I'm going to put you in a leg press, show you where your seat should be. We're going to record your seat setting. We're going to start with a weight that's really light. If I say 1 to 10, 10 is heavy, uh, well, what does that feel like? It feels like a 3. Well, I put a little more weight on. When we get to a 5, you're going to do 12 reps on the leg press, and I'm going to teach you how to raise the weight and how to lower the weight. We're going to record that weight. After that, you don't need me. Next time you come, go up 5 pounds, go up 10 pounds, take your time gradually adding. That's how simple it is. Mm-hmm. But a lot of I see trainers want to make it difficult and not do that and put you on a ball and uh, push a bazoo ball on the floor or a 45-pound plate and do all this stuff where it's almost like they they don't want to wean them off of them. They, they want them to make sure they needed their expertise by not doing that. Find 12 exercises and learn how to do those, record the weight, and you don't need me, you don't need a personal trainer. And I guess that's probably, if you're going to give a blanket recommendation to somebody that maybe is 45, 50 years old or older that's never trained before, it's, it's hard because a personal trainer could be the best thing in the world for them unless it's not the right personal trainer, then it could be the worst thing in the world. Yes. So I guess that, that what I always try to tell people is just don't be afraid to try different people. And if it feels good and it feels safe and you're getting results, and they make you feel better about yourself, then, yeah, then it's probably a pretty I, good fit. I always say uh, it, it's better than smoking crack, and I've never smoked crack, but maybe it is. Uh, if, if you're not getting hurt and you're doing an exercise, if you're doing a plank, you know what? It's, it, my, my opinion, time any, any, it's inefficient, time wasted. There's so many better things you can do, but it's mm-hmm. better than smoking crack if you're doing something and not getting hurt. And like you said, you feel better, you're, you're getting results, go ahead and do it. I mean, high-intensity strength training isn't the only way to train. Again, I come back to it is the absolute best. I started when I was 14, uh, and there isn't much I haven't done. I never did drugs, but uh, I've been on platforms and yanked and jerked barbells around and never saw a machine until I uh, was 24 years old. You had the, probably one of the craziest exercises I've ever heard of anybody doing. Tell me what you used to do. If you, I don't know if you even want to put this uh, put this into a microphone. The, the Smith machine where I st- stood on the on the bar? Was it? Yeah, this, no, 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 no. This is way back when you were, before you got religion, before you got safe and uh, ne- with the West Point cadets. Ne- neck bridges? Neck bridges while you're bench pressing. <laughs> <laughs> if you can, if I, and it's, I can't, I can't, if, if you you're in a bridge, it. if you're in a neck bridge, yeah. your feet are on the floor and your body's up, up in the air and your top of your head is on the floor, yeah. uh, that's a neck bridge. And I'd hand them and we'd start with 135 pounds. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd have them do 10 reps. And this is, a, okay, so you were how old? You were like a 25-year-old strength coach? 23, my first year at West Point. Okay. And, and you're dealing with these cadets who will do anything you tell them absolutely. to do. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I mean, I'm embarrassed. That's criminal malpractice. If there's any cadets out there that still have neck issues, uh, <laughs> contact I'm in assuming. Riley. <laughs> you don't have a website to get a hold of yet. <laughs> but that's criminal. It's stupid. Yeah. But that's the only thing I knew. And back then there was York Barbell, uh, Muscle Muscular Development magazines. Joe Weider had a muscle fitness magazine, and uh, just seeing stuff like that, and you just you that's just, just try what you do. And do it, and then and not worry about it. What what changed when you realized wait a second i'm never i'm not going to get people hurt in this weight room like i'm not going to if they're going to get hurt it's not going to be in the weight room uh probably when i met arthur jones yeah you know i I realized that there's so much out there that i didn't know about uh that was a lot of it was just so much safer and better and whatever there's a golf magazine and this is where, where it is today dustin johnson who's a number one ranked golfer in the world 
on the cover of a golf magazine, they have him standing on a stability ball. It started out as a Swiss ball. It came from Switzerland. There's, yeah. a, there's a history to it. He's standing on the Swiss ball with his feet on the outside edges of the ball with a golf club in his hand. <laughs> and you want to say, you want to He's a great golfer, but I want to punch him in the face. <laughs> but, but he set a world record. <laughs> do you know how many adults are going to try standing on a ball and, and swing a golf club? And it, that, you know what? It's funny because so much of that, too, when some guys do get to a certain level of doing anything, one of the biggest things you have to fight is boredom. Maybe for him that's the best thing because he's going to get bored otherwise. If Tiger Woods had, if Tiger Woods had found different ways to do things instead of changing his swing every, every few years, Maybe you wouldn't have ended up with back problems. I don't know. It's just uh, there's. I know you're running out of time. I'll give you a story uh, about a Swiss ball or a stability ball. David Carr, when he was with quarterback with the Texans, uh, worked with Nike, and they sent him to Hawaii with his family to do something. And he went down to the local gym in the hotel he was staying at, and he started working out, and there was a personal trainer working with a, a man that he thought was in his 40s or 50s, and he knew who David was, so he came over, and he sit, wanted to start talking, trying to get him to do some stuff that he wanted to do. And David was a PE major, and he was pretty knowledgeable. Uh, and we spent a lot of time teaching and talking. And the guy, while he's trying to convince David to do whatever it was, the guy was sitting on the stability ball, fell over backwards, and split his head. Oh, no. <laughs> an, ambulance, <laughs> an ambulance had to come. He told me that story. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's funny. No, the physio ball, any physio ball story is funny. <laughs> if you just go, if you go on YouTube and look up... Uh, Physio ball fails, and that's that's a lot of fun. Yeah, physio, physio, not just fails, injuries. I mean, physio ball's blowing up. There was a, a basketball player from Florida doing bench presses on a phys, physio ball, and it blew up, and he broke both his forearms. Oh, jeez, really? Yeah. Well, that's where, uh, were you in the weight room? You were, it was in the training room, I think, when Dom, when Dom Capers was running on the treadmill. And uh, I, I think a physio ball got sucked up into the back <laughs> of the treadmill. And he went, he, remember how they used to have it set up in the training room there? The, the treadmills were facing out. Yep. And they went right into a wall. There was no clear space behind him. So Dom got, bam, smacked back into the wall. And you know Dom. Dom was like up immediately and looked like a Marine, like within, within 1.5 seconds. There was a study done with stability balls uh, comparing people talk – your core is activated. That's uh -huh. why you exercise on a ball. Well, they did bench presses and overhead presses with dumbbells on a stability ball and on a sturdy bench. They used electromyograms again to determine what percentage of muscle fibers you're recruiting. On both exercises, far more muscle in the core uh, was recruited on a sturdy bench than on the stability ball. And common sense would tell you, and this was a, a the conclusion in the study, they use far more weight on a sturdy bench right. than they could on a stability ball. So people saying that you, you activate your core uh, using a stability ball, it's just, again, it's not supported with science, but most people don't rely upon science. There's an organization called Pub, and Roberta Anding turned me on to this. It's a group of researchers that they will have people that want their research evaluated and confirm that it's reliable, that there's no limitations. Uh, and this group gathers studies, they evaluate. If there's limitations, they won't certify it. Well, when you, people, it's called selective re referencing. You can go anywhere and find a study to support almost anything you want to support. Uh, but if you want reliable, undeniable uh, information, this organization, Pub, is the place to go. And if people want to get a hold of you, since you don't have a website, you're not on Twitter, 
Twitter. <laughs> you'd be a, bad on Twitter, man. You'd a, end up going, you'd end up killing somebody. Is that a candy, yeah. that a candy bar? Yeah. <laughs> What's your email? <laughs> if you if you want people to get a hold of you, Riley R I L E Y ten nineteen at gmail dot com. Now I know it's coming. What's that? You're a loser. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, when, oh no no. When no, I, when, no. I, when I got when I got fired, uh, yeah. An article was written in the Post by Richard Justice, and uh, the headline was Texans fire uh, Riley and, and Kevin Bastine. Uh, what a mistake or whatever. And he actually called you, but he didn't get you. You, you were. I think it, my, my quote is in there, actually. I've got a quote in that story. I don't know if it was in the story. I thought it was oh, okay. in, on, on, on the website. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't actually in the paper, yeah. but it was on the website. Okay. But uh, I. People started commenting, oh, those are all old players. They don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, Riley's a loser. He's old. He doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> he's all machines. Uh, I still get calls from cadets at West Point, players at Penn State, and Redskins, and uh, guys saying it's just unbelievable. Um, thankful that we did what we did the way that we did it mm -hmm. because they have so many friends that they have that they know that some of the problems they have didn't come from just football but from some of the you know dumb things they were doing well and, uh, and that is true like i i talk about how it's been hard for me to transition in some ways to working out when i'm not an active athlete but part of it's been really easy because you kind of you exposed me to that if i were still sitting here trying to hang clean <laughs> and do all these other things at at 43 years old i'd just be in unfortunately disaster. the the certifying agencies there's certifications you can get in a in a one-day conference yeah and say you're a certified you know trainer uh and it, not that it means anything the, the cadillac is the american college of sports medicine that's i got certified just to say i'm certified um and i don't know that that made me a better strength coach and i'm gonna say that it didn't but uh it's just so much of the stuff that's out there, uh, there's so many people that are being taught by people that were former strength coaches. Uh, the National Strength Coaches Association, which does a lot of good, but they have their own mantra. And if you want to get certified, you've got to at least study. And most people practice that, uh, that practice. Most of the stuff that's being done today, probably 95% of the stuff is just, it's not, not supported with research. Well, what's the old, uh, what's the old rule? In, in that industry, which is uh, simple works, complex cells. And if it's the more complex you can make it sound, the more the more sophisticated you can make it sound, the more physio-ballish, then you're going to be able to sell that because it's new and it's innovative and it's, it, and it's unique and yeah. just simple. And that's why high-intensity strength training is so simple. And you don't know how many times once people have been exposed to it properly, they say it, it makes sense. It makes sense for me to not bounce weights off my chest and throw weights in the air and uh, not not emphasize the lowering of the weight. It just makes so much sense. Maybe, yeah, and maybe when you're 45 years old, you shouldn't be jumping off of a box 50 <laughs> times in a row in rapid fashion. Nobody loves that more than orthopedists because we've never had more Achilles tendon tears than right now. I've never had one orthopedic surgeon tell me that vertically loading your spine by putting a heavy barbell on your your shoulders and neck is good for your spine. You know what I... Uh, well, we get it, boy. You know, we'll end up going on forever. We start talking about different ways to train. Um, awesome. Thanks for coming in, man. I know it's a pain in the ass getting up here. No, I appreciate it. And again, I'm going to tell people, Seth Payne is the was uh, the hardest working NFL player, college player, athlete I've ever worked with. Ah, and I pr appreciate you. Well, that's really the only reason and I brought you, and, you up here. And, so we can well, and you know what? You 
you know that when uh, when when I got here, there were most players were not exposed to anything that I was I was teaching. Yeah, and because you were, uh, if not the one of the most respected players in the locker room, having you commit fully the way that you did made it easier for me. Oh, thanks, man. No, that's uh, that's good to hear. I'm at that stage in life where I think about all the bad things I did, so it's nice that I had that. And you don't remember, but sitting in the locker room with my back away from the locker room so I didn't have to watch you guys get, get dressed and undressed, I had a, a bulletin board in the weight room, and I always posted stuff on the bulletin board that was evidence-based so you could see that uh, there's a reason why we don't squat, there's a reason why we don't do cleans, there's a reason why we don't do exercises on stability balls, and uh, I thought that was important. And there's a lot of players, including you, that were intelligent that uh, I think appreciated that. Awesome. Thanks, man. If you guys want to get a hold of him, uh, get him at email because, uh, like, uh, he's – oh, I'll tell you a quick email story. Lance McCullers, the pitcher for the Astros, we have him in once a week. So we And he's a really, oh, really my. cool, really accessible. I listen, I listen to you every day. Well, we uh, we tried to email him a couple articles once. So we, we needed to email him a couple articles because we wanted to ask him about it. And he just said, "Don't don't email me anything. I don't I don't check my email. Just go ahead and text it to me." So that's that's where we are with the younger people, Dan. We're old now because we use email. Don't don't bother with the email with the younger folks. So thanks a lot, man. Absolutely, thank you. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.